You're listening to the Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle Dolan as she interviews a range of prominent leaders about their experiences. Her guests share stories about challenges they have faced during their career, as well as important learning opportunities or moments of insight. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are encouraged to embrace authenticity and real communication. Welcome to the latest edition of my Authentic Leadership Podcast. And today I am very, very excited because I am speaking to Margaret Cole, who is the newly appointed Executive Board Member of APRA, so the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority. Um, And her main focus is on superannuation. So can't wait to get into speaking to you, Margaret. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I think we're going to, um, I first heard you speak, uh, I think it was February last year when we actually had the uh, rare opportunity to, to do an in-person event in Sydney where I was the keynote speaker and you were, um, you were being interviewed. as the, I was uh, introducing myself to you the, were um, in- the senior leadership team. Yeah, so that was the first you time were. I had to interact with them. Yeah, and, and I was... Um, uh, well, I was impressed by your style and the stories you shared. And I remember thinking at the time, I need to get Margaret onto my podcast. So it's it's taken a while, but here we are. Yeah. So I want to start off with, uh, you know, let's 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 delve way back, way back. And where where did you grow up? Give us a little bit of a glimpse into your early life. Uh, sure. So I grew up in a town in the northwest of England in the UK called Preston. It was very much a working class town. It was famous for having, being a centre of the mill industry, you know, cotton mills, textiles. It actually features in a a Charles Dickens novel called Hard Times. He reinvents the name of it. I think he calls it Grime Town, which gives you a sort of feel of how it was. So, yeah, I was uh, born and brought up there in a working family. My father worked in one of the textile factories, actually, all his life. Um, and my mother did various odd jobs. Mm. And siblings, or did you have? Oh, yeah, I had uh, elder twin brothers, um, but they were 12 years older, so they kind of left left home when I was a small child. They weren't very academically inclined, so I was a sort of the odd one out in my All family. Right. What ha- were they really protective of you growing up? Can you remember them being protective? Yeah, no, or not, not really? really, because they honestly, they left school. I think you could leave school in those days at 15, so they left and moved out and got jobs in another part of the country. So, no, I just remember not knowing them terribly well, actually. Mm. It might have felt you more grew up as a single child. Yeah, a bit that way, yeah. Yeah. I remember I'm I'm one of eight and my eldest brother moved out of home, like, pretty much the day he turned 18. And my younger brother, so they're, like, I don't know, there must have been, like, about a 16-year gap between them. Once um, Shane came home to visit, which he didn't come home to visit that often, and my younger brother asked him who he was and why did he keep coming? (laughs) (laughs) I used to love it when one or other brother came home at Christmas time. That's when I got to see them, and I just thought it was very exciting. These people who I hardly knew, you know, these uh, shadowy, tall <laughs> boys with dark curly hair will turn up at Christmas sometimes. It was marvellous, like Father Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So coming from a, you know, a working family, working class family, what was your first job, like your first real job that you got paid for? Oh, gosh, I had a gap year after school and before university, and I actually was trying to save up to go and visit Israel to be on a kibbutz. Um, 
So I took a sort of temporary job at the local camp, local council, and I was writing what we used to call gyro checks, benefits checks, you know, <laughs> for people who got money from the state for whatever reason. There was no computerized system, so you literally wrote them by hand. So that was my first job. <laughs> I was about to say, back then, you would have literally been writing the checks Yes, literally. Out. You got a yeah. piece of paper from your team leader, and it gave you the name and the amount, and you literally wrote the check. Yeah. So you've um you've you now live in Melbourne, Australia. Yes. So yeah. when when did you move from the UK? Or oh, have actually, you or, or have you moved around, I should say? No, I've moved from I moved from the UK almost exactly a year ago. So I've just passed my year anniversary. In fact, this time last year I was coming up to the end of my hotel quarantine in Sydney. Um and then I moved across to Melbourne. Melbourne wasn't doing hotel quarantine at that time. Um, and I'm here, be- well, originally because my husband, who wanted to come and take a job in Melbourne, he actually is the chief veterinary officer for Victoria, so very different style of job from mine, except we're both public servants. Um, and he we, he wanted to do this and agreed to do it pre-COVID, and I thought this is a good time to move country and do something different, perhaps. So, um, yeah, that was the, that was how we came to be in Melbourne. Mm. Um, so, so you moved for his job. Did you have a yeah. job to come to or did you think I'll just not, figure it out when I get here? Yeah, not, I didn't have a long-term job. My my previous job where I was um, responsible for risk and regulation and other issues at PwC in the UK, they offered to second me to Melbourne for what was going to be my last year in the partnership. And um, so I came over here as global regulatory leader but knowing that I was going to just spend a year doing that, wondering about what I would do next. And uh, then actually not long after arriving, I got into a couple of conversations and ended up being approached by APRA to do the role that I've now got. Right. So tell us a bit about the role. Tell us a bit about what APRA does and your role. Yeah, sure. So APRA uh, looks after prudential regulation for Um, large parts of the financial services industry. It covers banking, insurance, and superannuation broadly. Um, And we we try to ensure that the areas and the firms that we cover remain stable and strong. It's a regulator that's interested in looking after financial stability. Mm. And how... how much do you have to report or answer rule to the government you were telling me before about? <laughs> uh, well, quite a lot. <laughs> we uh, ultimately were answerable to Parliament um, and to uh, the minister responsible for for this, which is the Treasurer. And, um, and so we deal a lot with the Treasury and uh, indeed, you know, we we regularly appear at parliamentary committee hearings uh, to answer for our activities and what we've been doing. But I had my first one of those last Friday. How, how did you go? How did you? Oh, well, how do you? Others, how, how would you will be yourself? The, others will be the judge. <laughs> I've been reviewing the transcript. I think I I think I didn't say anything too silly, so that's a triumph. <laughs> <laughs> Are they the ones that get like televised live? Is it like yes, indeed they do. Yep. Okay, yep. so it's not like you. Yeah, it's full on. Is it? Is, does that happen in the UK? That's all this stuff. Uh, yeah, similar, very similar. Uh, we have Parliament TV in the UK, and if you're one of the people who love watching regulators speak in public, you can <laughs> tune in 
here or back home. But um, most people would find it somewhat dry, I think. I was going to say brilliant daytime television. <laughs> did did you, I, know, I know you've only done one um, yeah. last week. Did, did you notice a significant difference between um, Australian and UK? The, the format is, you know, really very similar. But I, I think, well, no, I talked on topics in the past in the UK that were kind of very political at the time because I was in, in the regulator in the UK at the time of the global financial crisis. But obviously superannuation is a hot topic. It's a hot topic that many people are interested in, the media, politicians, obviously, and real people because everyone in Australia you know, has a superannuation fund. Mm. Pretty well, mm. everyone. Yeah, pretty much everyone. Um, I, I want to go back. I want to go back a yeah. bit. And what, yeah. who's been the biggest influence on your life or early career, would you say? Yeah, undoubtedly my mother. Um, I mean, my mother left school at 14. She she got married when she was 19. She had my twin brothers at the age of 21. A career wasn't an option for a woman for, from her background in those days. And she very much wanted me to be well-educated and have a career and have the opportunities that she didn't have. So mm. she was very much the driving force in my early life. Yeah, well, that's that's amazing when um, parents can think. I want you to take most of the or take advantage of the opportunities that, mm. that she never had. Yeah. Is, you, is your mum still with us? No, sadly not. Neither my mum or dad are with us. But you mm. know, they, they. I think about them every day. They left. They left a long-lasting impression. Yeah, <laughs> so that's so good. Yeah, still being able to influence you, which is great. Absolutely. Values, values in particular, you know, sort of truth, justice, being honourable, standing up for what you believe in. They were very important values in me growing up. Yeah. And do you feel like you're taking, have taken them into your leadership style? Yes, absolutely, definitely the case. I really have a strong uh, commitment and belief in those values and you know, my mother was really interested, very, I mean, for somebody who hadn't been highly educated, she was very interested in lots of things and very interested in theatre and loved Shakespeare. And I got a book of sort of abbreviated Shakespeare when I was about four years old. <laughs> and she was very big on Shakespeare quotes and words of wisdom. Um, and she sort of instilled in me various things from Shakespeare. In fact, the, I, the quote that I tend to sort of try and stand by and I, I bring it out in speeches from time to time is from Hamlet um, and it's when a character called Polonius is giving advice to his son when he's going away to, to Laertes and one part of it is the words um, that he finishes up with the words this above all to thine own self be true and as it must follow the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man and mm. that is that's the one that I love and that tends to stick mm. with me. That gave me little goosebumps when you were saying that. Yes, I also, I also had Kipling's poem, If, you know, a picture of it hanging above my bed when I was small. Wow. I was definitely trained in um, the classics, shall we say. <laughs> Your mum has has left a legacy. Um, I, I want to ask you, especially you, you've already talked about the, the values you receive from your mum. Mm. Has there been a time in, in your professional career where that's, when those values you hold dear have really mm. been challenged and, and what you mm. did about it? Um, 
Yes, well, I've had a long professional career. <laughs> it's been a few times, I'm sure, but one or, one or two maybe stand out. Um, well, you know, as a one thought is, you know, I, I spent 20 odd years in private practice litigation law. And when I first joined, it was a bit of a sleepy old fashioned environment. And over the time I practiced law and was a partner in two different firms, you know, law, law, law really got with the commercial program, if you like. And I found that, you know, that so what became to matter a lot as partners in law firms was targets, how much money you made for the firm. And as a litigation lawyer, you know, you make most money for the firm by fighting cases long term, long extended trials and things. But that isn't really always in the client's best interest. Probably it's most often not in the client's best interest. Client, client's best interest probably get to an end of the dispute, and move on, save money, not spend it on expensive lawyers. So I used to find myself slightly caught in this conundrum about what's best for the client, what's best for the firm. And I always went for what's best for the client. <laughs> so, I didn't make myself altogether popular with senior people at the firm. So I guess that's one area. Yeah, um, I was going to say, how did it go down then with the firm? Yeah, like, no, no, you, weren't, you were never meeting your targets and, you know, that wasn't uh, – <laughs> it didn't go down that well when it came to annual performance review, let's say. Um, I think – I mean, I think I've, I can think of another example if I've got time to – Yeah, yeah, go for go it. Go there. Um I suppose when I, when I was in regulation in the UK and I went to the UK Financial Services Authority in 2005 and I spent my first, as Director of Enforcement, so I spent my first 18 months there really trying to, to um, you know, reorganise the enforcement division who had not, who were a bit demoralised by the case they'd lost. And we, I wanted to get as really functional and able to take on future challenges one of those challenges was in was criminal prosecutors for insider dealing, which we'd not done there before. And it was a notoriously tricky area. So we went somewhat boldly into reforming the division and getting it really great and functional. Um, and we started to have some good successes, including those criminal cases. And then along comes the global financial crisis. Start, we started with a run on a bank called Northern Rock in 2007. And then obviously later in year later with Lehman Brothers in 2008 and that precipitated a political um, a look by the politicians at the structure of the regulator if you like in the UK and that was at the time when the, there was going to be a general election Labour had created this authority the Conservatives decided they wanted to dismantle it and send you know create a twin peaks model where conduct regulation was done in the FSA and um, prudential in the under the Bank of England um, I, get, I need to get to my point. I'm going on a bit here. Um, but the point was, I in that politics of the day, a very senior, important politician in the opposition, you know, had a very had a line he was taking with the media. He wanted to create a new economic crime agency, and he wanted to merge the prosecutors and agencies of different um, authorities. He wanted to merge the my my enforcement team, if you like, with the serious fraud office and someone else and someone else. And I discussed that with my team and we, they were universally against that idea. And um, I really didn't think that was the best way to have effective prosecutions for insider dealing and market abuse. So I kind of went up against this politician, if you like, and, and challenged this view. And it was really one of those electoral things where he, he wanted, he had this point of view in the newspapers a lot. And he didn't find it that comfortable that I was saying I didn't think that would work very well. <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, I did it. Um, of course, that person that gov- that person ended up in a very powerful position in the new government and responsible for <laughs> a decision that seriously impacted, you know, my next promotion opportunity, shall we say. So um, <laughs> oh. and uh, there we are. But it, you know, at the it's fine. It's years ago, and I've moved on. And I've had several other great, great roles since then, yeah. so I can but smile I, about I, it now. Yeah. But you know, it was. I guess if I had been less, um, if I'd been more politically attuned and less keen on standing up for what I thought was right, I probably might. My subsequent career might have taken a dif- different trajectory, but I just couldn't do that because. And it wasn't just my view; it was all the people I worked with, and they wanted me to express their view, and I was their leader. Mm. Um, and I just had to do that. I think. Yeah. Well, that that to me is uh, that typifies good leadership. I think I was gonna I was gonna say um, I was gonna ask you a question, but I probably know the answer is like, do you regret doing it? Would you do it differently? No, I don't think I. Yeah, so I do it differently. It was just, it was the wrong thing to do. And I, actually, it's very funny. There's some more funny politics around that, but that agency never got created. Right. It, <laughs> it never so, went very far. So in the end, you were right. <laughs> well, for now. It's an idea that pops up every 20 years or so, as I now know. And, and then it becomes too difficult. It's in the too difficult box because, you yeah. know, merging different agencies from each of the agencies that would have been on the merger list were under a different branch of government. So we were under Treasury, the, there was the Attorney General's office, there was the Home Office for another one. You know, it was like massive Whitehall politics would have got involved. So it probably was never going to happen. And the person promoting it probably knew that too. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was a bit naive and maybe didn't know that and felt I ought to stand up for what I thought was right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so that... that both of those sound like uh, pretty big challenges. Have, have, yeah. they, have they been the biggest challenges or have you had, you know, if I had to say what's been the biggest challenge in your career, what would you say? I mean, I think that one is up there because it came with all the elements, didn't it, you know, including macro politics, if you like. I think when I started in a law firm, which was to do my training in 1985, um, it was a very, as I mentioned it before, old-fashioned traditional environment, uh, very male-dominated and this was the law. So when I say male dominated, I think really a bit crusty and old fashioned, not, um, you know, not like in financial services with trading rooms and that kind of behavior. And uh, there was only one female partner when I joined and she was actually a salary partner. She hadn't been allowed in full equity and she couldn't use the uh, partner's bathroom at the office because that was really a, a male bathroom. Mm. <laughs> Funny how I remember that. Um, and then when I, I actually qualified, in, I think I said I started in 85, it might have been 83. Anyway, I qualified in the mid-80s and uh, became a partner quite rapidly in 1990. In those days, you could you could go on a fast track to partner, really. Firms were smaller and less people sort of battling away for their careers. But um, and then so I became a partner just the year before me. We had a couple of female partners and then there became more female partners. But I think I'm right in saying that the statistics on female partners in law firms is pretty well stuck around the 8 to 12% mark for those 30 years. Mm. Now, however much attention firms, including my former firm, PwC, you know, in a different sector, have put on trying to improve diversity to, to get, you know, to get to 30% numbers now, you need to be having more than that coming into the partnership each year. So it's a, it's a long journey. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, yes, very long journey. Um, what's been, and we talked about the challenges, we'll, we'll get to a bit more positive stuff. What's been the <laughs> highlights? What's been a highlight of your career? Um, I really, I loved the time at the FSA because I was very lucky in my timing pre-crisis <laughs> and I had a chief executive who wanted to give someone the opportunity to change things there. The FSA had been formed from my nine I think different regulators and and have been going along for a little while unchanged and I could see a way of doing things in a different way and he very much promoted me in doing that so I got license to change things and that was a real benefit and I had a great team of um, senior heads of department and we really coalesced and worked together to make something work really well so we could get outcomes and not and it looking back it feels pretty serendipitous that doing that I don't think you often get all those factors that come together to allow you to do a change program in that way and that's not to say it wasn't difficult it was difficult because it meant making like a third of the division redundant and that was very painful for the people Um, and I told stories then around my own father I told you he'd been worked in a factory all his life just as I went to Cambridge University he was made redundant because they closed that factory as part mm. of the the roof, the changes that came about under Margaret Thatcher, actually. Um, so my father, aged in his late fifties, and only having, well, maybe even he got to about sixty by then, only having having worked in one place pretty well all his life. Um, after he'd come back from being in the navy during the war, was suddenly made redundant, you know, to the latter end of his working life but needed another job because I'd only just gone to university and he was fearful that he wouldn't be able to help me with that so I knew the kind of pain and emotional struggle of redundancy but it just kind of had had to be done in the context of uh, transforming the division into something where we could bring in some new ideas and new thoughts and new ways of operating mm. um, but it was and it was an interesting journey and there were plenty of people with survivor guilt and there was a real sort of downturn in productivity for six months inevitably when you're doing that program and I remember we ran a, an away day to acknowledge the pain and then move on to the future and that sounds like jargon or you know or corporate speak but actually it works it worked incredibly well mm. and being able to bring in new ideas worked incredibly well so I look at that as having been given a great opportunity yeah. to change something um, that worked yeah. How did, how did you find sharing the story about your father? And I, I, I could even, even when you were telling it to me then, I could see, you know, I could still see the grief mm. in you. How, how did you find, you know, sharing that personal story help you with um, getting people, I guess, to understand that it had to be done? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know whether I intended to do it at the outset, but it was very difficult. People didn't like me much because I'd arrived, observed and was forcing major change on them. And actually the mythology is that I arrived and did it right away. You know, it took 18 months of thinking, mm. talking to people, assessing, and then, but you know, and implementing. And people were very upset that this was happening and we were the only division in the FSA challenging, um, tackling this sort of challenge. Others needed to, but they hadn't really gone there. Um, so I wasn't greatly liked in this period and I would be you know regularly misquoted on what I'd said about why this needed to be done Um, so on that journey I guess I thought well this you know I do know I I didn't 
I didn't sort of do it in order to kind of make an impression. I really did know and understand why it had to be done. Um, sorry, what, although it had to be done, what, what pain and issues it would cause. Mm. And I mm-hmm. hope people saw that. I think they did see it as genuine and authentic because it really was. Mm. Yeah. How is um, throughout your career and, you know, the different roles you've played and, you know, as you've evolved, how has mm. your leadership changed, would you say? How has it evolved? You know, I think I'm going to have to confess something <laughs> to you. <laughs> um, look, being a private practice lawyer for 20-odd years doesn't give you much chance to demonstrate leadership in the way that I think about it now and you think about it. Most people think about it because you end up, you're leading teams of people in a, you know, in a technical legal environment, shall we say. And I remember when I went for my interview for the FSA, one of the things they wanted to know is how, you know, what leadership have you done? Um, and I probably bigged up <laughs> the um, what happens in a law firm, if you like, because it's not leadership in the way that the FSA thought of it or PwC thinks of it. So I probably rather, I wouldn't say embroidered. I never embroidered my CV, but, um, you know, bigged up would be a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and I was rather taken aback by how much leadership <laughs> was required. <laughs> but I sort of got with the program quickly and had my had my instincts. So I went there knowing what I wanted to be able to achieve as the outcome, let's put it that way, which is, as I said, more functional enforcement division that the organisation would buy into using enforcement, which it didn't greatly before. And it would buy into that because it would see how we did that we could do it efficiently and well and we could get results in you know in the wider world. So I knew I wanted to do that. And I think sort of learning how to be a leader was on the job. Mm. Um, I'd certainly had no formal training. Um, and the FSA, you know, cared about leadership skills and, and did mm. uh, do training and did do uh, things that were important and relevant there. So I've, I've no doubt I learned on that journey absolutely by doing things. Um, and I've tried to take that knowledge with me. Um, I realised the things that didn't work well <laughs> you know, um, and the things that work better. And I've tried in every role I've moved on to since then, well, it's two roles. When when I spot the things that I think aren't going well, I'm, I'm, I'm more careful how I express myself. <laughs> Wow. you can get people get turned off rather fast if if you turn up with the wrong sort of terminology of why do you do it like this round here I think you might have even alluded to that when I in the talk that I heard you give and I it just so resonated because I'm sure I can be very blunt very direct and also when you start a new role and you're somewhat take shocked like I mean you're in a new environment sometimes the culture is very different and sometimes you think oh my god what are, what are they doing here and and I would open my mouth and that would come out <laughs> oh. so, so I would I, say I'm more diplomatic that way I, hope uh, I, am. Right, I so, think I am others might disagree I, I was going to ask you have you noticed <laughs> a difference between literally from your previous job in the UK to the job you have now which I know you've only been in it for a few months but have you noticed a difference in the way you have had to either lead or communicate or listen or any differences between the UK and the Australian culture I guess Not really I, in fact I would say to you because I've had a job in regulation before coming to APRA does feel a bit familiar a bit like coming home actually and I'm 
And some of the people at APRA have actually worked at the UK FSA in the past. I don't. I think there is one I worked with in the past. <laughs> so it, it feels somewhat familiar. Um, and I think I'm still in my. I'm still well in in my learning phase. Mm. And therefore, because I've learned in the past that opening my mouth and blurting something out doesn't necessarily get me the best outcome. I'm trying to be circumspect. But um, the chairman asked me the other day, he recognizes I'm being circumspect. And, and he was asking me, you must have you must have some thoughts, Mark, early thoughts. So I shared them with him, but I'm not ready to share them with the wider world. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so tell me, what do you love about your job? This job, what do you love about oh. it? Oh, that chance to sort of make a difference on a wider stage. I mean, so look, prudential regulation is vitally important to the financial services world. Uh, superannuation is such an important, relevant area for this country and, and people here. Um, so there's a really, a really interesting and fascinating big picture with a backstory, which is inter- interesting to to understand about the creation of the compulsory super system, which is, you know, we don't have in the UK, only a few countries in the world have it. And it's an inflection point because the government have made some new legislation, your future, your super. That's very important. We've been accorded some new powers. Um, I'm a big believer in using powers. Um, and I think there's a real difference that APRA can make here. And I hope that coming with my past experience, like both public and private sector, I can really contribute to that Hmm. and I've met met a few but great people well I've met a lot of great people a few of them in real life in the time we have been able to go into the office between lockdowns and and many online Um, it's a great team of people but you know hugely committed and what you get with public sector roles is you get that commitment to mission and the mission isn't making money Um, but you know it's really making a difference in real people's lives and that's Mm. I find that's a good reason to get out of bed in the mornings Mm. you mentioned lockdowns before and also that you know you you traveled last year during Mm. you know during during the probably at the height of the pandemic um we could focus a lot on the negatives of the last 18 months but what's been the silver lining for you both Mm. uh, professionally and personally I guess out of COVID Mm. I think um so professionally, I mean, it, it is hard spending all day on a screen, but it gives you an effective way of meeting a lot of people. Um, and it's good for inclusion because you can have a lot of people on a call that might have been harder or less efficient to get together. So there are, there's an upside there in the professional world. And in, you know, in terms of my home life well you get gaps in the day where you can take the dog out for a walk (laughs) not many gaps in the day but um when we're not in lockdown and I can be outside Melbourne more I can ride my horse so I riding is my passion horses are my passion I even as well as bringing the dog over from the UK I even made a snap decision (laughs) six months ago to transport my horse from the UK because I was missing riding so much so um Occasionally, so, you can grab a ride at the end of the day because of not having to commute. I was going to say, how so? How far away uh, is your horse from where you live? Right. Well, I'm living in Albert Park in Melbourne, but we were renting a small cottage out in the Macedon Ranges, 
um, which actually at the moment I can't get back to mm. because of lockdown. But when when things are more normal, that was so so I, weekends I could get a lot of riding in. Yeah. Or late on, a, you know, as summer comes when the evenings are nicer, we might rebase out there for a while. Mm. Oh, so I was, I was going to ask you, my next question was going to say, when you're not working, what do you love doing? Is, and that's would it. it be riding, horse riding? <laughs> yes, it is riding. Yeah. Um, you just, I've you done really, it since I was four. Oh, okay. <laughs> I could just imagine you as a four-year-old riding your horse, quoting Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, you, must, you must miss, like, being, you know, with the restrictions we're in at the moment, not being able to get and to ride your horse. Yeah, and I do miss that, but... It's also very different riding here from the UK. UK has these marvellous things called bridle paths mm-hmm. and footpaths over private land, it's, and it's very different here. So in the UK, you can just go out and ride across fields if there's a designated bridle path, and that doesn't seem to exist here in the same way, so I'm noticing no. a few differences. Yeah. No, I don't think that exists at all. No. Yeah. Okay. from uh, the old feudal system in the UK. So. Right. You escaped the feudal system here, but you didn't get the bridleways. <laughs> Pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. A final few questions where we're going to get really personal. Well, ah. not, a, not, not too personal, but personal enough. Um, if you could change one thing about yourself, what do you think it would be? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that is that hesitation so many? Well, I was thinking from, aside of obvious you. ones like being taller, thinner, or anything like that. <laughs> I think it would be I wish I was a morning person. I'm not a morning person. Ah. I think morning people get so much done, more done. Oh. So are you a night person though? Like do you stay up late at night or yeah, yeah, not terribly. I'm not a night clubbing type, but no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> thing because I wouldn't be able to do it just now um yeah I think it may come it may be more enhanced when I when I became a partner in a U.S. law firm but based in London you know where if you went in early in the morning it didn't wouldn't help you because you'd have to stay late yeah (laughs) as well um but I don't think even as a child I was really a morning person so um it'd be great to get some more hours in the day Mm. Well, my other question I'd love to ask everyone is, do you have a favourite quote? But I think I do believe you've ah, already given us your I two s- little favourite quotes. In, you've I? Sli- yeah. I slipped that in earlier. Are they the two? Uh, I could give you another one. I could give you from, from Kipling, from If. Yeah, let's <laughs> do it. Part let's of that is there's a line in that that says, if you can hear the truth as you have spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, and I, <laughs> that means, you know, you can be speaking the truth and a, and a journalist will quote it in a different way. <laughs> no. You have very I, lovely quotes. Your quotes are I lovely. Have, mm. if, we had, if we had a few more hours, I, I could. Because you know, <laughs> I used to learn them. My mother had me learning Hamlet's soliloquy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. So I could do to be or not to be for you now, but it would go on a bit. Right. Okay. <laughs> We'll leave that for another time. We'll do that. <laughs> um, you, you know I'm the founder of Jargon Free Fridays and I hate jargon and I'm sure, you know, in your <laughs> industry it is rife not um, only of jargons but of acronyms. Um, but is there, is there a bit of jargon that really, really annoys you or, or have you noticed different jargon in Australia when you come to Australia? Oh, gosh. I can tell you I, 
there was a piece of jargon. I don't know if I haven't heard it that much here. I may have heard it once or twice here, but I started to hear it a couple of years ago in in the UK, which is pivot. When oh. anyone says pivot, I always think pirouette. Yeah. <laughs> Margaret, I love you even more. It's my most despised, like in the last two years, my yeah. God, can everyone stop pivoting? Because, yeah, it's like. It's funny. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? I mean, it, I, I, I know where it came from in the world I was working in because it came from a public relations consultancy that we were doing some work with and they started using this word pivot. It's, kind of- it's where it all comes from. <laughs> consultants. Yeah introduce these terms and then it all sounds very fancy and then everyone starts using it but yeah I remember four years ago I was going on about the overuse of pivot and then when the pandemic Mm. hit oh my goodness gracious me it was like every second word people are talking we need to pivot we need to pivot and it's just it's just it's just so overused stop pivoting everyone stop pivoting it's making us dizzy I've, I've read it a bit here but I was hearing it more in the UK yeah. Okay. Final three quick fire questions. Yeah. What's the one meal you love cooking? Uh, Italian. Italian? Okay. It's <laughs> very wide. I love cooking it risotto is wide. and pasta. Oh, okay. Do you do do you do um homemade pasta from like oh, no. make the pasta? No, no, no that's a bit I make too... the sauce. I make the sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I buy the pasta. Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit time <laughs> intensive. You got like about four hours on a winter's afternoon. You yeah. Can make, um, no. Okay. <laughs> risotto. Right. I like mushroom risotto. Oh, yeah. Same. It's one of my faves too, risotto. What's your favorite 80s song or artist? Oh, artist has to be Queen. I grew okay. up on Queen. I was, I was going to say, um, it's going to be a, a good UK band, I'm sure. Yeah. And yeah. I think, oh, I've got so many favorites. I, I love I Want to Break Free. Mm hmm. I love yeah. the video that went. With I love that wasn't <laughs> that was like such a groundbreaking video. I think at the but time it got and, banned in the US. Oh, it was seen because they were controversial because they were dressed in because they were dressed up as women. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> okay, final question, Margaret. If you could give one piece of advice to your twenty-year-old self, what would it be? Oh, I, I if I went back to twenty, I think I'd um to try and understand the value of relationships and in the professional context more and the and the networking and the fact that there are other things that get you on in your career without being an excellent lawyer say for example I probably Mm. thought you know I can just show how good a lawyer I can be and it'll all be great (laughs) that's a bit too narrow in my thinking so the value of uh you know all the all the other things that it takes as I know now to be able to get on in life and get the positions and roles you want yeah I don't think I've done that badly but it probably took me until I was 40s to realize the value of networking relationships no you clearly haven't done that badly but yes it is uh it is advice we give our 20 year old self Margaret thank you so much for being part of the podcast um you've got amazing opportunities and responsibilities in the role you have I'm um, I'm sure if you're both your parents around considering the sacrifices they made and uh, the values they instilled in you, I think both of them would be pretty proud of uh, what you're doing at the moment. So um, all the best in uh, getting, moving and living in Australia. Um, I hope you get back to riding your horse one day very soon and thank you for being part of it. No, thank you. I really enjoyed that. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Authentic Leadership Podcast. We welcome your suggestions for leaders you would like to hear from in future episodes.